hello and welcome to episode 80 of the 1099 for the week of February 20th, 2017. I'm your host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is the editor-at-large at Polygon, a co-brother on My Brother, My Brother and Me, and someone who's about to have a hot new TV show on CISO, Justin McElroy. Justin, thank you so much for doing this. How are you doing today? It is my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I am I am exceptionally well. So when I did that intro earlier, usually I try to like say, like, here's all the cool things this person does. Uh, and I didn't get to list all of your, yours because you really do a lot of shit. Uh, the Adventure Zone, Sawbones, Monster Factory, uh, things I bought at Sheets, which is a personal favorite of mine. Thanks. Uh, you know, the, the very illustrious Till Death Do Us Blart. You do a lot of stuff. And mm-hmm. this, this, this podcast, very often because there's so many freelancers on it, we talk about kind of that tipping point between like, I want to do so many things, but when's the point where I'm like exhausted by just how much I'm doing, where you have that like, Am I doing too much? Am I doing too little? I mean, for you, now that you are spinning all these different plates, you have like the full-time job, the podcast, the TV show coming up. Are you like happy with the number of things you're doing right now? Is there like, do you want to scale back anything? Do you want to keep adding more? Like, how do you balance everything? Well, you know, it's hard. Uh, uh, the, The best thing I think about having several things that are working sort of simultaneously is that. I don't feel I don't necessarily feel required to do keep doing things that aren't interesting to me. Mm. Um and 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 I think that's a natural evolution of any sort of creative product like you create it and you mess with it and then you see, you know, if, if it's still worth messing with. Um and I've had a few projects like that where it's just like, well, that was fun, but it kind of reached its um logical conclusion my wife and i used to do a um two and a half men review podcast (laughs) by people who had never watched two and a half men until ashton kutcher joined the show um it was called losing the sheen and it (laughs) ran for roughly 10 episodes before we realized like ah man we really do have to watch two and a half men every week i don't think this is a good bargain like i've explored this creative space and i don't like the decor uh, currently, so I mo- we moved out, uh, and now we do Sawbones, which is about medical history and is is a lot more um, uh, fun to do and also successful, I think, because it is fun to do. So, um, to answer your question, like I, I have lots of things that I would like to try. I would say I'm probably the the my roadblock right now is I'm I'm saturated on things. I've become really successful at doing things that don't require other people that I'm not like related to or employed with to make happen. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that like the stuff that I'd like to do now, uh, like requires a lot more collaboration and that and work and time and money and everything, uh, which none of which are like necessarily uh, easy to come by. Cause I'm really like a a self-starter. Like I, when I'm interested in something, that's when I want to do it, and that's a little bit harder to uh, to keep all that aligned when you've got a lot of different people uh, working with you. How many of these things start as goofs and then take on a life of their own? Again, when you look at something like you and a friend reviewing Sheets products, which sometimes becomes this long narrative between episode and episode, and uh, even the idea for Monster Factory where you're creating these awful creations and different, you know open world games, RPGs, MMO stuff like that. And suddenly that becomes this, you know, every episode is two to 300,000 people watching on YouTube. How much of it starts as this could be a funny thing. And then it becomes a, Oh, now I just need to keep doing this because people really like it. 
for me, I have found that it, they start by the time that I'm actually making something with them, they have already been germinating and knocking around in my head as like a funny thing. Like I'll use things about sheets as an example. If you haven't watched things about sheets, it is a, uh, ostensibly a, um, food review show where I buy something at the gas station sheets and then review it with my friend Dwight. Um, the format is actually a quiz show where Dwight has to guess what I think of the thing. Um, and the idea, and I'm really genuinely non ironically, um, obsessed with like review videos on YouTube, like especially uh, people who are sort of, I would say like outsiders who have access to fast food or whatever you, you like and uh, make videos of them reviewing it. They have no specific expertise or sometimes like charisma, but like they're still just making the thing. Like they're still sharing their thoughts about mundane. Have people. you, and I'm sorry to interrupt, have you seen Dame Drops, the, the guy? Oh, the yeah, pod- yeah, yeah. So he's Super been on this fit. podcast. He's a friend yeah. of mine. And I 100% relate to where you get in those YouTube holes. And that's one of them I'm deep into where you're just like fascinated by it. Dame, I would say probably, I would say like arguably has more like almost too much charisma for what I'm looking for <laughs> for my for my food review videos. But it's that idea of like reviewing these things that are like mundane and are completely accessible to anybody with three dollars. You know, like <laughs> there's just no barrier to entry, you know, yeah. like and, and but I, I think those are fascinating. So the idea of doing one like my idea was just to do one where there would be like additional layers of narrative and absurdity layered on top of the original concept, which is already like, which is the height of like mundanity. Like the concept is the most mundane thing that you could conceive of. So layering other stuff on that, on top of that. But the idea to do that is one that like when it initially came to me, made me laugh, but it had to stick around for a long time. And eventually, usually when I do these things, it's because like, I just need to get rid of the thing. Mm-hmm. Cause otherwise like the thing is just in my head constantly until I like get it out of me and do the thing with it and find out what it is, which sounds like BS, but it's, uh, it's honestly kind of annoying usually uh, because it's like, I don't know if this is funny or worthwhile or whatever, but I'm kind of fixated on it. So I have to do it. So like, um, and I would say to let those blart, which is an annual, uh, eternal review podcast of Paul Mark Cop 2 that we do with the um, uh, worst idea of all time guys from New Zealand. Like that was another one that it, it started as a joke, but if it's going to make it to the stage where you're actually asking other people to listen to it and consume it, I think it has to come a little bit further than that. Yeah. And I mean, you can do these, what maybe you'd call odd experiments on the side again, like where you're doing these different YouTube shows or, different podcasts and still kind of, you know, maintain my brother, my brother and me, your polygon job. But when you do this TV show, which as I would assume demands a lot of, you know, you have to be in a certain place at a certain time working, I would, you know, I guess long hours. Like, did you have to take time away from polygon or other things to actually shoot this? Was it in your free time? And just to kind of give a background on it, like how did it come together? When, when did you decide like, okay, we're taking this podcast and making it to an actual show with CISO? Uh, well, I'll answer the second part first. I, we started talking about the show. Our agent, um, started talking with CISO, which there are people at CISO who uh, enjoy our program, had enjoyed our program already. Um, and, 
that was like all the way back in February of 2015 when we started those conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, There just wasn't a real clear path to what a TV show based on our podcast would look like. Um, And it took us a long time to find those answers. Um, It took us specifically like a year and a half before we started filming in September um, to find, to find the answers to those questions. And, and for the filming, I mean, leading up to the filming, there's a ton of work that has to be done in terms of plotting out a course for what the show is going to be and specific, you know, bits, locations, because we shot in Huntington, which I'm the only one uh, on the, 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 you know, of the producing team that lives here. So there was a lot of like me finding people to, to, to talk to and suggesting people to, to discuss, uh, to be on the show, I should say. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of that kind of work that just kind of had to find its way into the the cracks and crevices of my my day. Um, and then once we actually started shooting, um, I actually we took a, a month sabbatical from Polygon um, because th- there was just no way. I mean, it just yeah. it, it conceptually wouldn't have made sense. We still recorded my brother, my brother and me on the weekends when we weren't shooting, which probably not our best episodes. We were probably <laughs> at like peak, absolutely sick of each other. Um, I remember one episode. Uh, it was the first one after the first week of shooting and we were all absolutely just drained. I mean, like we yeah. had nothing, you know, we had put everything into the show that week and we had nothing. We actually had to take off our pants while we were recording to like, just make it just to like get our minds going a little bit, like just to like get some sort of like, we had to shake it around. We had, we had to like do some dancing, just like power, power poses, like whatever kind of tricks we could come up with to make a halfway decent show. But we still recorded the podcasts. Um, I think we had, uh, um, a, a, an episode of the adventure zone, I think a live one that we had saved and luckily that's every other week. So we didn't have to worry about that one. Um, and then, uh, uh, sawbones, I kept recording in the evenings after we finished shooting. So the, the podcast had to kind of work around the TV show, but, um, for Polygon, I just, I just had to take the time off. It, and when you're talking about, I mean, your podcast is successful. It's been going on for a long time. You have a, this, you know, continuous audience. You have people who come back every single week, but when you move podcasts to, you know, live shows where you're selling out theaters or the TV show like this. Is there a fear like deep down that like, again, you have this consistent audience who downloads every single week, but do you worry like, how is this going to translate to other formats? Of course, you're not just like throwing shit against the wall and saying like, Oh, hopefully this will work. Like you've, you've done your research. You've thought about it. You've thought about how it will translate, but uh, does that, is that something that you really, really have to discuss beforehand of like, how are we going to make this, feel similar to the actual podcast, you know, but you know, on CISO. So with the lot, with the live shows, I would say it's pretty similar to a, a, a regular, um, a regular episode of the podcast, except for we tend to talk through things a little bit before we were, uh, do the show, um, mm-hmm. just to have some signposting on what we're going to do for each uh, question and to make sure there just aren't any in the lot that are just duds that we have nothing to say about, um, which happens sometimes on the podcast, but we can edit that out. Um, we can't edit it out live. So we tend to, to try to, uh, as we say, pre goof the, the questions <laughs> to make sure that there's like something to them. Um, and usually, and it's not something where we take to the logical conclusion, like 
as soon as one of us says something funny and we can tell there's like a funny vein there, then we bail on it and don't talk about it anymore because otherwise it'll just seem it'll just be rehearsed for the show. It, for the TV show it was a struggle because our show is sort of built around spontaneity uh, where we need to be able to follow the the funny thing in a gen, in, in any specific question or situation um because that's where we find the stuff we don't we don't you know uh, live shows aside you know we don't like pre-plan jokes that we're going to get to but with the show we, we were our, our sort of biggest hesitation was there are realities of production where you have to have people in, in a certain place at a certain time if you have x number of hours to record something and you have to get pre-approval from people and locations to make sure that it's okay. So you don't have the same amount of freedom um, to sort of just say whatever comes to mind. Um, and, and for us, the solution to that was one we sort of found um, through our production company, Embassy Row, but also working with JD Amato, who's our showrunner and director um, who was really willing to just sort of trust us and be flexible and lean into what was working for us and bail on stuff when it clearly wasn't working. Um, because we weren't just, you know, trying to make this TV show. We were learning like how to be on TV. So yeah. like there was a huge learning curve for us. Um, and, uh, you know, luckily we just, we, we just had to strip as much of the structure out of the show as we possibly could and still make everybody feel comfortable and it was a huge leap of faith i mean on ciso's part on nbc rose part on jd's part it was a huge leap of faith that like even without a lot of um pre-planned stuff we'd still be able to find like worthwhile material um and we were incredibly nervous about it beforehand i mean we were really really scared that it wouldn't happen um but uh, luckily I, I think it all came together really nicely. And of course, you know, you know, your own download numbers and stuff like that. And you've seen, uh, the comments and tweets and people who have consistently listened to my brother, my brother and me. But when you did have that first live show or, you know, maybe the third or fourth, something like that, and you see either a semi full or a full theater of people getting ready to watch you take, you know, Yahoo answers, uh, is it surreal? Like, is there definitely, is there a surreal nature to it? Because you're maybe Skyping with two of your brothers randomly once a week to record these, but then you're actually in front of all these, you know, hypothetical listeners who are usually numbers on some sort of back end compared to actual people right in front of you. Was there kind of a holy shit, this is real moment when you did some of your early live shows? For the first one, I would say yes. Um, the first one we ever did was. I believe April 2011, uh, and it was a, a, a we were opening for Jordan Jesse Go at, at a Second City Theater in Chicago, mm-hmm. um, which is like no, basically holy ground for for us. <laughs> and we were like, yeah, we'll just go up and do some fucking boner jokes, um, and it'll be great. And also, this other podcast that we've been listening to for years, um, we're just opening for them, no big deal. And also. The guy who is emceeing the show um, is somebody who I've like really liked for a long time, uh, uh, and and like it was it was hugely intimidating. Um, I would say though, like by and large, I don't get that nervous about it because, and this is going to sound like 
I don't mean for this to sound um, uh, egomaniacal. It's really not. But the the my brothers and I making each other laugh is something that we have been doing since Griffin could talk. I mean, we've been doing it for 15, 20, 30. Uh, how old is Griffin? Uh, I, you know, like, I don't know, yeah. 25 years, something like that now. Um, and, and it's something we've done around dinner tables and on car trips. And like, we have done it so many times that I just don't get freaked out about it. If the three of us are together, like we will be able to find something funny to do. Um, so once we got, once we saw, you couldn't have convinced us of that before the second city show though. I mean, like we were convinced it would just be us standing up there with blank (laughs) expressions on our faces, um, choking. Uh, but luckily that was not the case. And that one was pretty much all we needed to see, like, you know, and, and also the people who come to see our show like us already usually, and they're incredibly generous. And as a result, like they, that energy is absolutely like, there's nothing like it. I mean, like it is impossible to replicate and I don't know if it's as good listening to it afterwards, but when you're in the room and you've got that kind of energy, um, feeding into you, uh, uh, it is, there, there's really very little like it. And what you said before, it it seems obvious, but I think it's important. Like the fact that you do have two brothers with you in the, in these shows where all you've done growing up is have these sort of goofs, except before, you know, they weren't just being recorded and distributed to people. And now they are like, do you think your personality would have showed up or come out as much as it has? And you would have maybe started doing as many silly things, on YouTube and otherwise, if it wasn't for the fact that you kind of got this start with your two brothers where there's just this level of comfort throughout, you're not doing it before. You mentioned like a lot of the stuff you you do is dependent on either direct coworkers that you're really comfortable with or your brothers. Like, do you think that's had a huge impact on how your career's actually gone? It's been helpful for sure. I mean, like I, speaking completely frankly, I have complete confidence in Travis and Griffin and I. I have much less confidence in myself <laughs> personally i mean yeah. like i in my ability like that idea that i would be that we could, the three of us can go out and do a good show almost always like i do not in any way shape or form feel that way about myself um and i think that the show has certainly helped i mean it, it, my brother my brother me has certainly helped but there's also that a weird sort of um magic feather aspect to it um well, not even magic feather because that implies that it's completely imaginary, and the fact that my brothers are funnier than I am is not imaginary. <laughs> um, the, the, like I don't. Uh, there's that thing of like, man, people really like it when the three of us are together. Um, uh, or you know, like the other shows. Like, there's nothing that I do that's really just me. I mean, like, I rely on my wife on Sawbones to like help prop me up, and I rely on Dwight when we're doing things I bought at Sheets because like. I feel like the funniest stuff in those shows comes from them. And like, that's the way I feel about my brother, my brother, me too. So it's weird. Like at the same time as I feel confidence in these teams of people, like I don't, I wouldn't necessarily that, that translates one-to-one for confidence in, in myself. The way I first found out about you was from, I think it was a giant bomb live stream. It was probably like a post E3 thing or something like that. Maybe PAX or GDC. Uh, when you first did that, when it's just you on the couch in front of that audience, I mean, again, it, it sounds like you're not someone who really consistently gets nervous, but you mentioned before, you're not as confident in just yourself carrying that. Were there nerves or something like that when you're just putting yourself out there in that way? Oh my God. 
Like I, I, that was giant bomb, man. Like, yeah, that was Ryan Davis and Jeff Gersman and Brad and, and like Vinny and like, yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I was, I was nervous. It's funny. You know, I was, I was much less nervous that I would be able to be funny and worthwhile. Um, and much more nervous than like whether or not they would like me. Yeah. Like, that's what I wanted. That was my goal is like, man, I hope when I leave, those guys are like, that's a chill dude. I really would like to get a hang going with him sometime. And it's funny, the atmosphere that those guys um, engender, uh, it really, it felt very, um, like when I first, the first time I was ever on, or I guess it would have been the second time, because Ryan Davis mentioned I was wearing the same jacket that I was the first time. And it was this like, standard issue i work at home brown jacket that like i wore to like all trade shows back in the day and um the the, and he called it my professor lactose intolerant jacket and it was like it that was the atmosphere so like it was it was really fun chop busting kind of thing that like i i is not normally the way i work you know usually i'm much too much of a fragile fragile creature to make that effective but um uh it it was it was always a lot of fun but yeah i mainly just wanted them to like think i was i was cool um so i don't don't know (laughs) yeah i i've had alex navarro on this podcast and i remember more than maybe other people i was just worried the same way as you were i'm like i I hope he thinks i'm kind of like a a dude he might want to hang out with later not even if we don't hang out i want him to think like ah he seems like an all right guy and i was organizing uh i work for uh, Ten Gentlemen, which is a studio inside of Sony Santa Monica, and we were at E3, and I was organizing some of my teammates, team members, to get on the couch at a post-E3 show, and I was so nervous. I wasn't even on the couch. I was like, oh, God, I've been watching this like after E3 show for so long. I hope this goes well. It's it is it's something about giant bomb that's always kind of been like that. Uh, yeah, it's funny. As much, no matter what success that I have, it's still weird to me to think about those guys knowing who I am, which is just like, <laughs> it's deeply ingrained in my head at this point. Like there's not, there's very little I'll be able to do about it, but yeah, no, I mean, it's when I was coming up in, you know, quote unquote games journalism, they were the people who I was looked at. So yeah, no matter like, like you, no matter where I reach, it's always like, man, if they like at all read my stuff or look at the stuff, I'm super happy about that. Uh, and we talked about Polygon earlier and speaking of games coverage sites, we're now at the point where when I think about major game coverage sites, there's there's IGN, there's GameSpot, of course, there's Kotaku, and now Polygon is right up there in terms of daily visits or, you know, kind of notoriety or being respected in the industry. It, and you've been there pretty much since the start, if not since the start. Uh, when did you realize, I talked to Phil Kohler about this, and I, I said, like, when did you realize that, like, you're stable and everything's going well. And he's like, I still don't really know that now. I'm still always on edge because, you know, you're always trying to work to make it better. But when did you have that, like, I think we've made it. I think we've hit a stride where we're now one of the, the you know, top five game sites. You know, it's it's weird because I'm so close to Polygon. Like, Polygon started with me and Chris Grant and Griffin and Arthur were like the joystick people that started Polygon. And then we brought other people on to make eight co-founders. And like, so I've been there since the jump, you know, like there's not a single part of that site that I haven't, that I wasn't involved with the inception. And none of the, none of it was like my idea, but I was always there to nod (laughs) approvingly when other people had good ideas. 
and um <laughs> and uh the so it, it, as a result it becomes very difficult for me to tell what the outside perception of polygon is i mean like i don't i don't I, it, that that becomes very challenging for me to see it at, from the outside looking in like yeah. i can look at page rank things and see like oh man we're actually like moving up the the ranks in the list of sites like that's that's really cool but in terms of perception like i can tell you that the first time um i saw polygon quoted in like a um tv ad um i think it was for maybe like an alien game i think maybe alien isolation i'm sure it was there was another one earlier than that but that's the one that like springs to mind of like mm -hmm. oh man they're like actually treating this like a real thing like I, <laughs> a real website a, a real website like i we just kind of made it up and y'all are treating them like an actual website that's really wild um so so i don't know those moments those sorts of moments where you know you you people uh, uh agree to do interviews with you or um you hear i think the ones that have always meant the most to me is hearing from like people actual people that like polygon especially like devs and stuff but also people who just consume game media or just fans like hearing from them that like polygon is the site that they go to um has always meant a lot to me because it's so close to to me it's so close to like when we were when we were creating polygon we had such a blank slate um because i don't think that another site of that scale had launched in a really long time like actually started fresh yeah um so we had such a blank slate that i kind of felt we all i, I think kind of felt like well if this doesn't work there's no like backup plan for this like there's no going back because this was the one that we wanted to make like this is this is the site that fits our vision of what game journalism should be so like if this doesn't work then i i don't know I don't, how do i go to another place where like when we have created this from from uh you know from scratch basically um so yeah it's very it's the site's very close to me um and it and it's weird now as these other things become more successful to have to you know i was managing editor polygon so basically the number two person and i've since stepped back to um editor at large and now i work four days a week at polygon instead of five and um so like stepping back from the day-to-day -day of the organization is something that was really difficult but i i don't feel like i really had a choice yeah um but it it still makes me feel really good to see it succeed and you talked a little bit earlier about kind of your you know all your guys's vision for what you know game journalism game coverage is uh i mean we're you know, a few years separated from when you guys launched that, uh, and now that it is solid, there's a lot of other things going on. You think about how much streaming has become such a big thing, how there's so many game YouTubers out there doing Let's Plays, Top Tens lists, all those different things, and then here comes Waypoint and Glixel, where it's kind of, there's this weird sense of like, is everything going to be YouTube and Twitch, and then suddenly here comes Waypoint and Glixel, and there's kind of more other sites out there who are doing writing, who are doing games culture writing, like... Do you see, of course, you probably think about a lot of this because you're closely tied to a, a site the size of Polygon, but do you see a shift in the near future? Do you think we'll head more toward video, more toward writing? Do you think it's going to stay a combination? I mean, again, as someone who's so closely involved with this, it has to be kind of at the forefront of your mind of like, what is, is, is games journalism, games coverage going to continue looking like this? Like, do you have thoughts on where this might go? I think it's like, I mean, 
predict prediction is probably a fool's game in this case, but mm-hmm. um, I, I think that we've certainly just since we've launched Polygon have seen video go from a side product to a sort of core uh, product and something that like we have to think about as much as we think about text because people want to watch video. They, 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 video is, is where a lot of the growth is. That's where a lot of the ad dollars are. Um, um, so I, I would say that like, just from that perspective, like we've certainly seen that shift start. I think people are always going to seek out, um, personalities as video continues to, to expand. I think people are still going to gravitate towards the personalities that they find pleasing and they can connect with. I think the really cool thing about, um, that is that it has allowed a lot more voices to be heard and not just voices to be heard, but like a lot more specific types of voices to connect with an audience. You know, it's, it's that, it's that difference between like pre-internet, my, uh, grind core hip hop (laughs) funk fusion band would not have received any airplay whatsoever. And we probably never would have found an audience in the post-internet era, like we, there, there's a, a a leveling of that playing field and a democratization of that to where, like, I could probably find the eight to nine people that really enjoy my sound. And I think that, like, video, uh, YouTube specifically has done that for people. You know, you can find someone, if you want someone to just scream the whole time they're playing a video game, that is available to you. That <laughs> it you really is. Cer- you can certainly find that. Um so I think that's a huge plus. I think that's I think that's great. I think we have lost something in terms of, and this is my like cranky old man thing, but um, I think we've lost something in terms of accountability uh, when people are independently creating editorial content. Um, it becomes much more an act of faith that they are going to hold to certain ethical standards in terms of disclosure or accepting promotional money. And, you know, we've already heard a ton of cases of people who uh, have been taking ad dollars or making whatever backroom deals they need for access. Um, and and I think that the good thing about having a, a core organization is having that support, I think, also, uh, and that stability, I think, allows you to, first requires you to keep your job to be act ethically and to, and to uh, present the whole, you know, all those different sorts of connections and conflicts. But I think it also gives you this ability to say like, well, this feels shady and I still have a job regardless. So I'm going to go ahead and pass on that. And I, and I, I, if you're working independently, I think that would be a lot harder. And that's not to impugn the credibility of everybody who is working independently. Like I certainly would never, proposed to do that but i think that it it becomes a lot there's a huge impetus on people to act ethically and i'm when you disperse it that much to that many individuals like there are going to be you know bad apples yeah. um so that 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 i think I, I think that those two will probably continue to coexist if you had asked me three or four years ago i would have said i probably would have said that like it's all going to be youtube channels we should all just like pack it up but I think that like people continue to enjoy having the the stability and the accountability of those sort of central editorial hubs. 
God, I hope so. But the the ethics thing is super interesting. Yeah, I, the, fu- I fucking hope so. I should say that. <laughs> I mean, I hope. I don't know. Yeah, I hopefully we'll ass. see. But uh, yeah. I, you talk about the ethics thing. It, it, it is it's it's bizarre because you think about maybe someone with two hundred fifty thousand subscribers on YouTube or something like that uh, who isn't held to the same standard of you know game informer writer X where you know you have this you're under this guise of journalism when you're writing for a site like that but when you're a YouTuber and you get an offer maybe from a company to promote something even if you don't like it like it's it's if you're just that single person like you said like what's really stopping you from doing that what's stopping you from promoting that or saying good things because you're not held to a certain standard even if maybe you should be because you have this audience trust but mm-hmm. it's it's one of those things that I still get conf- like I'm not super savvy in the world of YouTube I, I, I like to learn more about it just so I can understand it but there's times where I watch videos and I'm like I don't know if this is like genuine enthusiasm or if this dude got like you know skyrim remastered early and the only way he could stream it you know two days earlier than everyone else was to say like thank you to the company this is great this looks amazing there's been no bugs like i just don't know it's it's kind of the the wild west to a certain extent even though it's i'm hoping it's it'll get me better up. it's but... always correct me up, but like when when people when uh people throw um free copies of games in the face of people who work at these outlets as like that's why you're swayed like yeah you're swayed because you got a free copy of the game. And it's like, Oh, listen, like I, I work at a company, like they would buy it for me. Yeah. That's the way that works is that they give me the money to buy the game. And also I don't own the game. Like they they take it back when I don't have it anymore. So it's like, there is no material (laughs) gain to be had from free copies of games. It's really not a, an attractive thing. Like usually if I get a free copy of a game, my first thought is, ah, crap. Now I got to figure out a way to mail this back to to somebody (laughs) at some point. Excess work. Yeah, like you write something it. and then also find a way to send the shit back. Yeah. Yeah, it's I I mean I think everyone who's ever written a review or anything of the sort has gotten like the uh free copy that changes things. And again, yeah, like you said, especially if you just send it back, uh I could definitely see that being like more annoying than anything else. When I was uh just coming up like getting paid either peanuts or nothing to review games, like maybe again, I would like to think I didn't cut any ethical corners, but when you're just coming up, there is that fear of Oh, if I give this game a four out of ten, maybe I'm going to lose the relationship with this publisher. Then my small, you know, Josiah Renauden dot biz dot games slash coverage is not going to get like, you know, that sort of support in the in, like in the future. And that's where I see maybe if you're a small time blogger trying to get you know a wider range of contacts, maybe you could have the moment where you give a game a higher score. But especially in your case, and like in a GameSpot or IGN case, like I've never ever seen anything of that sort yeah and you mentioned personalities before and i think kind of did i think we can end on this because i think it's something super interesting people are looking for personalities in games coverage more and more you look at no clip with you know danny o'dwyer suddenly leaving GameSpot, and he's doing extremely well on patreon and he's kind of doing this coverage that otherwise maybe wouldn't get supported on another major site uh because how much it takes to produce and of course there's kind of funny uh and stuff like that i'm not asking you if you are going to leave polygon tomorrow but have there ever been moments where you've looked at something like that and you see kind of the audience that uh, you know you and your brothers have and think like we could do something really awesome on Patreon or does putting all of your trust in something like that when you have you know people you need to support terrify you? We have a lot of people who like the stuff that we do, um, so certainly we have talked about like what crowdfunding something looks like um my fear is and i I think our our shared 
hesitance there is it feels like a really cool lever that we can pull one time. Yeah. Like seems like we got one one really good crowdfund in us. And like <laughs> that that I think because of that, it would need to be the exact right thing. And I don't think that we would ever have enough confidence in ourselves to know what that thing is. So we would probably like never um actually push the <laughs> pull the pull the switch on that. <laughs> we have been like the other thing about that is like I have been and myself personally and my my family have been extremely fortunate to be supported by people at every step of what we've been doing. I mean, even when it, when it wasn't financial, but like when I was at Joystick, we had um around 5,000 people in the Joystick podcast appreciation group that would support the stuff that we made um at every turn. And like a lot of those people have continued to follow along through my brother, my brother, me, the adventure zone, and even now to the TV show. And they've opened their wallets too to like max fun. Our podcast network has a drive every year where people pledge money and they don't have to shows are free, yeah. but they, they pledge money because they want to support this stuff being made. So like even without a crowdfunding campaign, like we have been extremely fortunate to be supported by our, our, our listeners, um, at, at every step. So like, I, I, I feel like we doing an individual campaign like that probably wouldn't make a lot of sense just because we've been so supported by them the, the entire time, both financially and just sort of like spread it, helping us to, to spread the word. Like you can draw a direct line whenever people talk about freelancing, I, I always encourage them to the, – the big things for me are always, you know, hone your craft, find your voice, work really hard to find what you can do that nobody else can do because that's the thing that you, that makes you viable professionally, I think. Um, but there's an equal part of that where I send an application to Joystick and it, I got ignored and then six months later – uh, I randomly emailed Joystick to see if they wanted to cover a post I'd written for the newspaper I was working at the time about the Gallagher's Gallery FMV game. Mm -hmm. And that reminded them that I had applied and that they had an opening. And my my still boss, Chris Grant, said, oh, you know what? I had meant to reach out to you. You reminded me. Um, and and you draw a direct line from that moment, that 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 extreme fortune brought on by Gallagher, um, to me getting hired at Joystick, to the Joystick Podcast, to the core of people from the Joystick Podcast Appreciation Group that followed us along to Mabim Bam, Mabim Bam Sawbones, The Adventure Zone, the TV show. It's all sort of bloomed out from that one sort of chance occurrence. So, like, there is both luck and skill involved in it. And I've fortunately been been really lucky to continue to find people to support um, the stuff that I want to do. Yeah, luck plays such a massive role in it, even though I think a lot of people don't always admit that when they're like, ah, oh, you know, did the work, got there, but it's like, yeah, but you need to get yourself set up so that maybe you're in the right spot when something lucky, like when you get lucky when something comes along. But yeah, I I can relate in a lot of ways. And it's nice for you too, because you do always have that big red button of, you know, let's say everything explodes. There's always Patreon. You have the audience already there. Just it's a good just in case once. lover if you have that perfect just idea. Once. Just the just the just one perfect once. idea. Yeah. I 
you know, just in case. Uh, and this is the last, last thing I promise this time. Uh, when can people watch the TV show? Where can they watch it? And where can people find you on social media? So, okay. If McElroyShows.com, M-C-E-L-R-O-Y, is all the sh- is links to all the shows we make, all of our social media stuff and um, and everything like that. So all the links to podcasts and what have you are there. The TV show will be on CISO. Uh, there's a CISO app on iOS. There's a CISO app on Apple TV and Roku. And also there's CISO.com, S-E-E-S-O.com. Uh, the show launches February 23rd. Um, all the episodes will be streaming that day so people can um, watch all of them. Uh, and and the the service is amazing. There's all kinds of like, they've got all of Kids in the Hall and Monty Python, SNL, yeah. Tonight Show, The Office, Parks and Rec. Like it's, it's, it's wild that we are even in the same breath as some of the stuff CISO has. So uh, CISO.com, February 23rd. Catch it. I, re- I really am looking forward to it and thank you so much for doing this justin i do remember the first time then you're on giant bomb i think you were talking about a sherlock holmes game or something yep, of that, that nature like giant bomb. Yeah. yeah and immediately after i was like i need to find whatever site or podcast you're associated with because this is hilarious so it's it's been cool to see how many awesome things you've done since then not that that was your origin point but for me it was uh and yeah it's it, it's crazy of a TV show, so I can't wait to actually see what the hell that thing is. Excellent. Well, I, I, I can't wait for everybody to see it. All right. Well, thanks again, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Hopefully, tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.